Welcome to SignalCast. In this episode, first Signal reporter Fernando Ramirez talks to Democratic congressional candidate Gina Ortiz-Jones, who is running in District 23, which is currently occupied by retiring Congressman Will Hurd. Next, Fernando speaks with Democratic candidate for District 25, Julie Oliver, about her motivations for running, how the coronavirus pandemic has affected campaigning, and her opponent, Roger Williams. Finally, we look at our biggest story online this week concerning how the ACLU is joining a lawsuit that will allow Texans to vote by mail. Gina, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. I wanted to get your response on Washington's legislation so far during the pandemic. What are your thoughts on that initial wave passed by Congress last month? Well, I think it's, um, I think we're, we're moving in the right direction. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's, it's absolutely critical with, um, you know, as, as you and I recently saw, there's now 10 million people, right, that have uh, collectively filed for unemployment in a very short amount of time. Um, and so there's, there's economic uncertainty. There's also, frankly, fear, right, within communities about, um, about this pandemic. Um, whether they're going to be able to get tested and, and frankly, whether they'll, they'll um, have access to the appropriate care um, if, if need be. So I think, um, I think the, uh, the aid package is, is um, a good initial step. Um, I think now, though, the focus needs to be on executing, right, and making sure we can get this, these resources to working families as soon as possible. Um, I, you know, these, these reports about, um, for example, the assistance to small businesses that, um, you know, not being ready when this administration said it would be. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, there are, there are millions of people, for example, that, that rely on social security disability checks um, that are going to have to jump through additional hoops to, to be considered for this assistance. Um, I, I, I would hope uh, that, you know, this administration and, and other elected leaders think through how do we get this, um, this assistance quickly in the hands of, of certainly our most vulnerable communities. And what about Trump's response so far? What, what are your thoughts on how he's led things? Well, I think um, <laughs> I, I think we are we are seeing, um, you know, unfortunately, um, what what happens when um, when critical infrastructure that was put in place to help us identify, um, you know, pandemics um, and then uh, coordinate a government response uh, that was adequate um, and uh, to to make sure that we are addressing this as um, as a nation, right? Um, you know, eliminating and defunding those things, that those were decisions that obviously took place before what we're dealing with now, but are clearly impacting our ability to, to deal with this cohesively. Um, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're unfortunately not taking um, as aggressive a step, I think, that, that need to be taken to ensure that we are saving as many American lives as possible. Um, so, for example, you know, there's, there's just been call it what it is, it's been foot dragging, right? For example, on, on doing something as basic as implementing the full force of the Defense Production Act. Um, you know, to think that we've got governors um, uh, and, and, and mayors clamoring for um, additional PPE and, and, you know, based on the estimates, you know, they understand they're not going to have enough hospital beds, they're not going to have enough um, um, ventilators and, and respirators, and, and all of that can be, um, you know, addressed if we've got Again, the full force um, of the Defense Production Act, it, that is fully utilized. Um, and so it, to me, it's been concerning that it, that has not been used because, um, again, you know, the time that is wasted is going to mean that we're going to needlessly lose um, American lives. For those who aren't too familiar with the Defense Production Act, can you go into a little bit of detail about why that's so needed at this moment? 
Absolutely. Well, I think so. What you're seeing, right? You're you're seeing um, right now states and um, states are, are having to purchase this equipment on the, on their own, this PPE on their own, right? And so you're hearing stories literally of of people reaching out to um, you know two governors, for example, reaching out to uh, to one supplier, and they're having to outbid each other, right? And on top of that. You've got our, our governors that are also competing with international customers, right, as, as other countries are also um, trying to procure the exact same equipment. And so what the, the, the Defense Production Act um, allows, the, uh, allows the federal government to do um, is to say, you know, look, company X, we're going to need you to produce this. You know, company Y, we're going to need you to produce this. And so what that does is, um, one, make sure that we have adequate supply, but also ensure that we're not getting price gouged, right? I mean, you've got equipment up there that is, that is, um, you know, masks and other equipment that is going for six times as high as it normally would. Um, and so we've got to correct that behavior, make sure we have the equipment that we need, but also make sure that we're not getting price gouged. Um, so that's, you know, that's the, that's the, the critical um, importance of, of using the full force of the defense production. Uh, the district you're running in, Texas 23, which covers a large section of the U.S. Mexico border in South Texas, how are residents in those communities uh, faring during the pandemic so far? Yeah, well, you know, this is um, a large and diverse district. It goes from San Antonio, um, right, a very large city, all the way to El Paso. We've got um, um, many border communities, um, and this is a district that is larger than 30 states. And so, um, you know, we've got communities like San Antonio that have some of the best health care in the world. Um, but we've also got communities like Presidio, Texas, right, where there isn't a hospital for 80 miles. Or, um, you know, communities like Arizona and Crockett County, where it's 170 miles uh, just to get a round trip to get a prenatal, prenatal checkup. And so, you know, in the most uninsured state in the country, Texas 23 is one of the most medically underserved communities uh, in the entire state. And so I think... Um, it, it, it's um, as I talk to uh, elected leaders and uh, with healthcare leaders, especially in our rural areas. You know, there's a lot of concern that, um, especially in our rural communities, that we need to stay ahead of this because you know, our rural communities are, are some of the most under-resourced uh, to deal with. Um, you know, should should uh, there be a significant uh, rise in cases, for example, in our rural areas? For example, I was I was speaking with a um, somebody that works in our, in our uh, one of our community community clinics. And, you know, the concern there is because in our rural communities, they have such a small margin, right? Um, and as people are, as they're taking on fewer um, elected, elected procedures, um, that's normally where they make uh, the money that allows the, the these facilities to continue because they see such a high percentage, uh, a high percentage of their, of their clientele are, are uninsured. And so when you have fewer of those elective procedures, that's actually less resources for you to, to keep people on. And so at, during this pandemic, you're actually seeing some of these facilities in our rural communities um, lay people off. And that's exactly the opposite of what needs to be happening, right? Um, and so the, the other concern is, you know, it's already a challenge to recruit and retain healthcare staff in our rural communities. And so if you lay people off now, the concern is that, you know, once you get over this hill, um, it's going to be hard for them to rebuild um, rebuild that staff because, again, they're going to have to now recruit from, from scratch. And so not only are these communities, do they have, you know, not enough tests per day, not enough, um, you know, ICU uh, beds, for example, but there's also the other longer-lasting um, effects of, of what's happening now. And, again, it'll be, it'll be much more, it'll last longer in, in our rural communities. 
you know, once you, from San Antonio to El Paso, once you leave those two, um, those two communities, in this vast, vast district, you've got a total of 26 ICU beds. That's it, right? 26 ICU beds in a district that is larger um, than, than 30 states, again, once you take out those big communities. But, I mean, that is not nearly um, what you would need should something significant break out. So I think from a healthcare standpoint, um, you know, there's a lot of concern about how we would address um, a, um, a, a significant outbreak. I think you, from an economic standpoint, you know, in this district, which has 800 miles of border with, um, with, with Mexico, the fact that the border was also shut down to non-essential travel, I mean, that has been a significant hit for our, for our border um, economies. And so, um, you know, I'm very cognizant of, of the ways in which many communities are, are dealing not just with the healthcare crisis, but also with such significant economic impacts like that one. I mean, in West Texas, you know, they're not just dealing with coronavirus, they're dealing with the impending oil bust, right? And so resources that many counties thought would be there just are not going to be there uh, for, for the foreseeable future. So um, there's there's a lot going on um, as as um, communities all throughout this district kind of grapple with the healthcare and economic consequences of what's going on now. I, I want to highlight one thing, you know, in, in light of, of what is happening, um, the, we as a campaign have, have, have looked and, and have um, tried to fill the leadership voice uh, that exists and have stepped up to connect many voters throughout this district with the resources that they need to make decisions to keep themselves and their families healthy, um, as well as connect them with resources, certainly, you know, financial, as federal assistance becomes more available, you know, helping people understand the way in which they, should, they um, are going to be able to access, access those things. Um, and so, we just did a, um, a virtual town hall last night. Um, I uh, had my friend, uh, Dr. Erica Gonzalez-Reyes, who is a, um, an allergy and, and asthma um, expert here in, in San Antonio, and she, we brought her on just to answer people's questions, right? And so you can actually, I encourage you to, to check it out. We posted it on, on our Facebook page. And because um, there are so many um, you know, families in this district where one or several family members um, are more comfortable speaking in Spanish. We've included Spanish captions in that, right, to make that as accessible to as many communities as possible. Um, we also have a resource guide, uh, which, you know, cap is a pretty exhaustive list of, um, of resources for folks, again, anything from healthcare-related, immigration-related to, you know, employment-related resources. Um, and resources, if you're, you know, a student concerned with your, um, your federal student loans, right, what steps you can take there. So that is also, we've also shared that on our social media pages, and we'll continue to update that. Um, and that's also in English and in Spanish. Um, and then the, our most recent initiative is a survey. You know, we want to make sure that we are being as helpful um, as, as possible, and so want to hear from, from voters. And so we've got a short survey that asks people, what are they most concerned about? What do they want to know more about? Um, and to, again, that'll help us tailor our virtual events as well as resources that we put out. And again, that's in English and in Spanish. So virtual town hall, you know, resource guide and, and survey, these are the things that we are, um, we've done as of late to make sure that we're meeting the needs of voters in this district during this very difficult time. I wanted to get your opinion on the ACLU and a couple of other civil rights groups uh, here in Texas running on to a lawsuit on Texas Democrats suing to allow Texans to vote by mail. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this? Look, I think we have to, um, uh, we've got to work to make sure that as many Texans can vote um, and uh, in a way that is healthy, right, and, and safe for them. And 
um, like that has to be our overarching goals, right? Um, and during this, these un uncertain times um, as it relates to, you know, what, what is happening with, with this pandemic and, and what it's going to look like ultimately, I think we've just got to be, um, you know, proactive in making sure that, um, um, that we are ready uh, to vote and allow people the opportunity to do so. So I would certainly support, you know, expanding vote by mail to ensure that Texans have the opportunity to hear their, hear, have their voices heard at the ballot box. Julie, thanks so much for joining us on The Signal today. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start off talking about the op-ed you recently wrote for The Signal. It's a very personal article about why the COVID-19 outbreak is such a danger to your family. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, I'm running for Congress, and it's my second time to do so. But the first time I ran, um, it was all about health care, because I have a son who has many, many health care conditions. In fact, we affectionately call him the walking pre-existing condition. So as Congress was debating and trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act in 2017, I looked at my husband and I was like, I've got a crazy idea. Um, I have to run for Congress and I have to, I really have to fight for my son's life. And so that's, that's the reason I stepped into uh, this political space is because I really felt like uh, Congress wasn't going to help my son. So I had to. But even more recently, and we are seeing that, I mean, we're seeing truly the casualties of elected leaders not taking coronavirus seriously. And we now in the United States are at a death hole of over 4,000 people, but it looks like it's going to approach anywhere from 100 to 200,000 people. And when we finally, I, I say we, my son is now 23. He uh, lives in another town. He's going to school there and he's finishing up college. But when we finally took this seriously is when I had a conversation with my son and he said, I invited him to Austin for dinner. And this was before spring break. He's like, mom, I, I can't go to a restaurant right now. He's like, I've actually already gone to the grocery store. I've stocked up on about a month's worth of groceries. I'm terrified of, of getting coronavirus. And so that's when I realized, oh my God, this is really, really serious. And he was I think before anybody in Texas, about a week before anybody in Texas was uh, thinking about this seriously, my son was. And one of the things I didn't even mention in the op-ed is I have a, a 30-year-old or nearly 30-year-old daughter who is a nurse. And we had a conversation, and I've been very, very nervous for her because, as you know, there's a shortage of personal protective equipment for our healthcare workers. And I've been really worried about her. And, and she and I had a conversation yesterday morning, and she shared with me she was going to be writing a letter to her husband, um, telling him all the things she wanted him to know in case she's not here in a month. And I mean, it just it, like ripped my heart out of my chest, and I started crying. And the fact that we've done such a disservice to the people who are putting their lives on the line to save others, I just, we can do so much better by them. That's really my next question, too, is on what we can do better. What are your thoughts on the pandemic response from Trump or Congress so far? And would you have changed anything about the massive stimulus package we just saw? And is there anything else you'd like to see from Washington moving forward? I think, yeah, I have opinions about all of these things. <laughs> so thank you for <laughs> share. Um, I think the response from the administration has been a colossal failure. You know, uh, Trump was briefed on this as early as December and chose to do nothing about it and continued to, to lie to the American public that we had nothing to worry about. The guy I'm running against uh, was sending out emails saying the exact same thing through like March 7th and March 8th, like we have nothing to worry about, the very low threat. 
this was a huge threat. It, it had um, devastating consequences worldwide. And what we could have done is the, the national government could have been purchasing protective equipment for healthcare workers and then distributing them to states. And not distributing them on, uh, well, who's nice to the president and who's not nice to the president. You know, the reality is I had, I had a, an inkling that we would eventually all be casualties of this administration because of how he's treated certain populations, whether it's been, you know, the Muslim ban that he started off with in, in Congress or how he's treated people at our borders seeking asylum. I was like, we will all eventually be casualties of this administration. And we are seeing that now. Um, I want to remind people that on March 13, the middle of the night, March 13, the House passed a stimulus package that was very pro-family, very pro-worker. It provided paid sick days. And then the Senate sat for over a week before it did anything. And by the time the Senate version um, was finally fully fleshed out, $500 billion or half a trillion dollars was earmarked to go to uh, corporations. So um, I think that we can still do better by, by workers in America and families who are really struggling. Um, I think a one-time payment is probably not enough. Ensuring that families can pay their bills and continue to keep their lights on, continue to make their mortgage or rent payments, and continue to put food on their tables is of utmost importance. Bailing out crew, the cruise industry, not so much um, a priority. You're, you're supporting Medicare for All, a single-payer system that would see Americans covered with free health care. Can you talk about why you're supporting Medicare for All and how it might help during a pandemic like this one? Oh, absolutely. I support Medicare for All because not only does it have more equitable outcomes, because everybody can have access to health care, including folks who are currently uninsured, which we have 5 million Texans who are uninsured, um, and, and they can manage chronic con- conditions even in a space that doesn't involve a global pandemic. So it it will improve our health outcomes in America, which we have some very, very poor outcomes um, for being a developed nation. But we can also lower everybody's costs because folks won't have to go to the ER when they um, have hypertension or diabetes. They can get it managed in a doctor setting. So that's why I support Medicare for All, because we actually pay for universal health care through our ERs. Well, let's Let's change that um, dynamic and let's allow people just to start seeing doctors. But in light of a, of a pandemic that has found many people suddenly, like millions of people suddenly unemployed, many of those folks who had insurance tied to their employment, who find themselves now uninsured or having to make um, a COBRA payment uh, that could easily exceed what they pay in rent every month. Uh, this is this is definitely the time. It's shown us what a what a gaping hole we have in the American healthcare system, and how many people are going to be left out of it merely because their their healthcare was tied to their employment. And, and we should have untethered this decades ago. It was a product of World War II, and it should have been undone immediately after World War II. Another position of yours is the Green New Deal, which scares just about every Republican in Texas. Can you talk about why you chose to support the Green New Deal over other climate action plans and why it's the best one for Texas? Well, the Green New Deal is, you know, is a package of legislation and uh, political uh, priorities or legislative priorities and regulatory priorities and where we put our spending. And we know that our earth is heating up. We we it's statistically proven our earth is heating up and we don't have much time to undo 
some of the damage that's already been been done, if we can ever undo it. Currently, we spend about $650 billion in subsidies annually, and I say we, the United States, we spend about $650 billion in fossil fuel subsidies annually. And if we reallocate where those subsidies are spent and move things over to the renewable space, not only can we, we disentangle ourselves from something that is killing the earth, the fossil fuel industry, we can also disentangle ourselves from decades of war that we've been in, fighting for oil um, in other countries. And if we move the fossil fuel subsidies over to the renewable space, I know we could get to 100, 100% renewable before 2035 because we have incredibly intelligent people, highly innovative people who can, can um, ensure that we can deliver electricity throughout the United States with the uh, supply of wind and solar energy and even wave energy. We can actually move to completely 100% renewable and a carbon neutral future and economy, and Texas can still remain an energy leader in this. So it's the one that works. And if we want to save our planet and stimulate our economy, we can do both through the Green New Deal. I wanted to ask about Roger Williams, the current congressman for Texas 25. In my opinion, he's much better than other Republicans at keeping off the radar. What can you tell us about William uh, Williams from his record in Congress or his past statements? Roger Williams is uh, an entrenched Republican fundraiser. The reason he's a congressman today is because he was Secretary of State, who, and that was an appointed position. He raised a lot of money for Rick Perry and George Bush when they were governors here. So they blessed him with a congressional seat. This district was literally drawn for him. So that gives you a little background on who Roger Williams is. He has always stated that a priority of his is to um, kill the Affordable Care Act. He doesn't believe that the government should be paying for any health care. And whether that includes um, Medicare or whether that includes VA benefits, that's questionable. He's repeatedly said he doesn't believe the government should pay for health care. He has also um, been a proponent of cutting payroll taxes for employers. Payroll taxes are what fund Social Security and Medicare, and we're kind of a pay-as-you-go system. We don't have this. We do have some level of trust fund, but we don't have enough that would pay all benefits um, every year for Medicare and Social Security. So cutting the payroll tax would effectively cut the revenue from Medicare and Social Security. And I'm not sure what his backup plan is when you don't have the, the funding stream to pay for folks who are living off of Social Security checks and, and getting their health care through Medicare. He's also um, voted with Trump, I think, about 95% of the time. He still continues to tweet the president, even through this, this um, crisis we're in today. And, you know, when I think about Roger Williams, I think he is grossly unfit um, to serve in this role. He regurgitates the talk. He parrots the talking points of this administration, you know, having to secure the borders. And I, I would love to debate him. Who do you think we are securing the borders against mothers who are coming here with their children? Is that who we need to secure our borders against? Uh, what would you do for folks like my son who are walking pre-existing conditions who wouldn't be able to have access to, to an insurance plan because an insurance company would deny coverage to folks like my son. And, and these are questions he's not willing to ask. Until recently, in fact, until this crisis, he was unwilling to host town halls. Now he's doing them telephonically with pre-screened questions that he's getting asked. 
Um, but I guess on some level, he is, you know, on a phone call town hall. I guess that's the best thing I can say about him, that he has been an absentee <laughs> congressman who parrots this administration's talking points, who believes in what he calls limited government, he wants to pay sm- a very small amount in taxes, and um, he doesn't want to help his constituents. He'd rather take big donation checks from the fossil fuel industry, the healthcare insurance industry, the finance and banking industry, rather than help people who are desperately need- in need of help in this district. So we're still a long way away from the general election in November. How has the outbreak changed your campaign and its strategy? So clearly we're not knocking on doors right now uh, because we are actively engaging in, uh, we're actually sheltering in place unless we have to go get groceries. So as a campaign team, we do everything virtually. All of our meetings are virtual. We have been connecting with folks in our district, um, basically doing well checks. We are calling folks, we are texting them just to see if they have what they need. And if they don't, we are trying to connect them with resources in our communities that can help them. And in fact, a week and a half ago, we put together a 13-county resource guide so that folks could find the resources where they live to help them with their basic needs right now. And um, it's, it's funny because I've now seen a few other campaigns follow suit and provide similar resource guides to their districts that are based on the, the counties within their district. Mm-hmm. So it is a very different way of doing things, but we are able to uh, speak with people who have urgent needs. Uh, we spoke with a woman in rural Texas who did not have internet. So we called her on our landline and she's like, I only have um, a loaf of bread left in my home. And she's homebound. And I can't pick up my prescription medications. So we immediately connected her with the Democratic County Chair who got somebody to her house to to assist her. We've been able to help folks, you know, file unemployment benefits so that they can start securing, you know, some sort of income since the the layoffs began a week and a half ago. So it's honestly, it's incredibly meaningful work. And I'm I'm happy that we could pivot and be this resource for this uh, community right now. So the American Civil Liberties Union and other civil rights groups announced Thursday that they have filed a motion to join a lawsuit fighting to allow Texans to safely vote by mail during the COVID-19 outbreak. Texas Democrats filed the lawsuit in Travis County District Court last month, seeking to temporarily extend the Texas Election Code definition of disability to all registered voters. In order to vote by mail in Texas, A registered voter must be 65 years or older, disabled, or be out of the country. Now, other groups, including the ACLU, ACLU of Texas, Workers' Defense Project, and the Texas Civil Rights Project are also joining onto the lawsuit. States all across the country are making vote-by-mail available because they know it is a common-sense solution to protect democracy and people's well-being during this public health crisis. Sophia Lynn Lakin, Deputy Director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, said in a statement, In failing to issue guidance making clear that all Texans are eligible to vote by mail due to the COVID-19 outbreak, Texas is forcing a false choice between protecting public health and allowing Texans to exercise their right to vote, Lakin continued. Vote by mail for all eligible voters allows for both. 
Texas can and should make this common sense solution explicit. Prior to filing the lawsuit, Texas Democrats said they attempted to work with Republicans on the impending issue. At the time, Texas Democratic Party Chairman Gilberto Hinojosa said that negotiations with Republicans fell apart because Republicans had no plan. The outbreak has already caused campaigns up and down the ballot to adapt to new social distancing requirements, including the cancellation of rallies and fundraising events. Last month, runoff election dates were pushed back several weeks to July 14th, still firmly within the pandemic's timeframe. Thank you for listening to The Texas Signal. The podcast was edited by Sara Thugvi. To find out more about who we are and what we do, please visit our website at thetexassignal.com.